Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 25, The Value of Words. seems to be a general idea that it may not be necessary to understand the words that we use when we're thinking, and that there might be another way of understanding ourselves without understanding what we're thinking. We have to explode this because thinking is a process of formulation in consciousness, and what we call a problem is necessarily a formal situation. The problem is that substance, that's the M at the end, into which we can insert a probe. And a situation is only problematical in so far as it is formal. If we remove all formal considerations, whatever, then there is no problem. This first question says that throughout the teachings of Gurdjieff, continual reference is made to the importance of words. And Gurdjieff says that there is a universal language and that it depends not only upon words but upon being level. He says that self-observation is dependent in the first stages upon clear meditation and that this cannot occur without clarity of definition of the words one thinks in. Gurdjieff, like many of the thinkers, even in the scientific field, knows that to think is to formulate and that the words that we use must be in correspondence with our thought processes. If we have words not in correspondence with the elements of mentation, then we are not understanding ourselves. The other question related to the first one is, up to now I have understood that knowledge can only be useful if there is a corresponding level of being. Now, there is a peculiar crime we can call intellectualism, where things can be inserted into the ears, record themselves in certain sections of the brain, come out on the tongue without ever getting into action. And this we would call the crime of intellectualism. We have a three-part man. We have to keep drawing this man, he's always recurring. Got damage below again, as usual spinal column each part contains the other two and most obviously we see this in the brain if I take the head and look at it from above there's a man's nose and there's his ears if I cut the skull cap off I'll see a place there and a place here and a place divided in the middle so roughly it's like this window we see in some of the churches of the Middle Ages. This front part corresponds with itself. It is the part that is peculiarly concerned with intellection. The middle part shows a definite division into two parts here. In the floor of the skull, when you remove the brain, you can actually see in the bone forms this partition. And it corresponds with the partition in the chest into the lungs. And the back part, again, has a unity. 
and the spinal centre going down here takes the messages. Now the intellective part is concerned with form and the back part is concerned with the urge or motor centres and the feeling part is concerned with yes and no. I like it and I don't like it. So there's the same kind of threefold relation in the head whereby you can think about the correspondence in the body. If we want to learn what the Logos means in the Gospel of John, we have to understand what form is. That Logos, that L and that G, remember, were upside down to each other, and were originally the same letter, making a six-pointed star, and representing the wheel of being. Now that is the word Logos before it was separated out into a time word. So the six-spoke wheel is the Logos. And the cosmic being, the totality of being itself, is the Logos. In the Gospel of John, when it says in the beginning is the word, the Greek version has Logos, and this Logos is God. Imagine the circle in which you can imagine no larger. That contains all formal actualities. They're not mere potential, they're actualities of form. And there must be for each form a corresponding symbol. And without the symbols in our mind we cannot understand the relation of the forms. So if we want to understand precisely what the word think means, we must understand the meaning of T and H and I and N and K. If we want to know the difference between think and thing, we must understand that K and G, the hard G, have definite significances. And if we don't get this universal symbology correctly fixed in our mind, we cannot understand the Bible or any great religious document, because they are all primarily written by people who knew this symbology. So, when we come to look at the threefold nature of man, as form man, idea, feeling man, the affective nature of the psychologist, the cognitive drive or urge man, that is a statement about three aspects of the whole man. In the Kabbalah, the Adam Kadman is the cosmic man, the Logos of the Christians, and represents itself in the individuated man by making centers in the organism. And the three centers are separated deliberately so that the three aspects of being can function independently. If we write will down there, psychologists call that connection, and we write feeling here, we would call that affection, and we write thinking here, you would call that ideation. Good, you called it mentation. Difference I'll explain in a moment. We then have a will or power of initiative, a feeling of liking and disliking, and a formal presentation. Now, it is tremendously important to understand that the will corresponds with the father. And the form with the son 
and this feeling with the ghost, the spirit. And originally, this spirit is absolute. When Christ says, God is a spirit, he is making a relation, an equation between this and this. The Trinity of God necessarily has truth as one of the terms we can apply to it. Truth is form. It is also love, and it is also this power. These are the three aspects of God. He's omnipotent, and this field of all action, feeling is field consciousness, is his omnipresence. And form is his omniscience. So in the individual man, the same things recur at the finite level. That part of truth which appears in the mind of an individual man we call thinking, where the thinking is self-consistent, as in true logic. That kind of feeling in man that appears as universal compassion is divine love manifesting in the individual. And that part of the absolute power that appears in individual man as initiative is the power of God, the omnipotence, at the individual level manifesting as individual will. Uh, if we were to mix these terms up, as we've been asked to sometimes, why, for instance, it is said, why not pretend that feeling is the word we should use for thinking? Well, I'm going to show why it should not be. Supposing we write down the word feel here. When you pronounce this word, you have to make the F on the lips by letting air through. Another form of writing that is maybe better free. The lips with air coming through. You put the lips together and blow. That is the letter F. Now, if we wanted to make a plosive out of it, the significance of the P and the F are not the same. We cannot make them the same. We can't say that peeling can have the same meaning as feeling. This release of air through a compressed substance, like the lips, has a different meaning from the release of air following a build-up and a sudden explosion. So if we wish to bring our thinking into correspondence with fact, we must have the correct term. If we voice P, it becomes B. The difference in the labial P and B is that the P is whisperable and the B not. You can say P, but you cannot whisper B. B has tone on it. You say it is a voiced consonant. So the meaning of the letter B is not the same as P. But there is a substantial significance in B. In the Hebrew Bible, the first letter is B. And the significance is, when we write the Hebrew B, it actually means what we mean when we say the word being. The termination in means continuously. So B actually means to enclose the substance. The earliest form of the letter B is a circle. And then it is squared off, cut in half to make rooms, and then it's written quickly as a cursive form like that. The Hebrew one represents the ground upon which a tent is erected. The wind is blowing this way, and there's Abraham again. Now, this B means an enclosure, 
and substantialization. So if we want to understand a given concept to do with substantialness and enclosure, we will have to use the letter B to signify it. Because if we don't, we will cause the whole of our vocabulary to slip and get out of phase with the fact. Supposing we have a line, and along this line there are things. That one is a rectangle, this one is a circle, here is a triangle. Now supposing we say, well, it's quite arbitrary to say this is a triangle, let's write triangle here instead, so we write triangle there. That means we have to find another term for triangle. All right, we'll put circle there. And we may not realise it, but in order to do this, we will have to shift every word in our vocabulary from its true significance. We're not allowed to use circle now for this, or triangle for this. So that every form that is defined in terms of a part of this cannot be called an arc of a circle. But the word arc, which belongs to circle, you can actually hear it in this circ here, which is this arc word, cannot be used if we use the word triangle for this. Arc would no longer apply to it. So the whole of our vocabulary would fall to bits and we would become guilty of a logical inconsistency. So that those people who think that terms are arbitrary are making a very, very big mistake. All terms are the product of primary phonetic facts. It is a physical fact that when you whisper a vowel, you cannot alter the picture on that vowel, no matter what you do. If you whisper and then you can hear the difference of the pitch. Now try to whisper on the pitch and you will find it's impossible. The form is an aspect of that which appears on the ear as sound and they're so related that you can't handle the sound without the form. And the whole universe is a formal structure. And that form is power behaving in a certain manner. Form is the way power behaves. So if power goes like this and travels along, triangulating, that's a description of what the Hindus would call Agni motion. When power goes like that, it actually generates heat. This is why we use the triangle as a symbol of fire. It is actually a character of motion. The absolute power of God moves in various ways. It can move like this, and it can move like this, like a Greek threat. This kind of motion produces the gross material earth. This produces expansion and heating of bodies. This produces the atmosphere, and so on. Each kind of motion is no more than a modality of power. Power behaving in a certain way is what we mean by form. When the power behaves continuously in the same formal manner, we say there is an existing being. If my body keeps approximately the same shape for a number of years, people recognize me, they fit me again to their mental pattern, because my shape isn't altering so much as to become unrecognizable. And yet, really, it is all power repeatedly behaving in the same way. This power, which is behaving in this way, is formulating itself as idea. You know, there's an argument between the Dominicans and the Franciscans 
about which is found the will or the intellect of God. The Dominicans who like to order things put the form on top, but the Franciscans who believe in freedom, Francis means free, say no, the will of God is prior to his intellect, because the will is the father aspect of God, and the form is the son aspect. So when we come to look at a, uh, an idea, which means a mode of analysis, in the Greek, the idea, we are talking about power behaving in a certain modal manner. And if we use the wrong form, we are referring to the wrong power. Now, all magic is a question of manipulation of will, and yet the will cannot be focused without a form. So that we cannot do anything unless we have a correct form. If we give a screwdriver and a hammer and a saw and a block of ice and a jug of water to a small boy and ask him to build a house and he's never seen them before, he won't know what house means. But if we draw one and explain it to him and so on and give him those things, he may try to do it because he doesn't know that there are certain inconsistencies in the things we've given him. So he will go and he will try to produce this thing. He will try, perhaps, on another occasion to build a house of cards, higher and higher, and the vibration of a passing ladder will shake it down. And he becomes gradually aware that some things are not worth the energy expenditure, except from an experience standpoint. They teach you what can't be done. But there is a real relation between the form and the way the power is behaving, such that if we get hold of the right form, then we can guarantee to manipulate the power. Know the truth, that is the formal aspect of the universe, the truth should make you free. What it makes you free from is the erroneous ideas that previously gave you faulty directions. So we can write truth here. That's the logos. We can write down here the good or goodness, make it into a noun substantive, and beauty here. We've got the platonic. Trinity. Beauty is a matter of feeling, sensitivity. The good refers to the will. The truth refers to the form in the mind. The true, the good, and the beautiful are the three aspects of the divine being. I want to get this pretty clear tonight so that we don't have to refer to this question of language and words so often because we must go on and substantiate this fact. Here is the three-part man again, and the question of levels of being is raised. Can a man understand without a being level? And that is a man's ear, and here is a sound. Impinging on the ear produces an aftermotion in the brain. Now, it is possible for the motion in the brain to go round and round and round and never appear down here. And if it just goes round and round and round like that, without ever expressing itself at all, you cannot tell, unless you're clairvoyant, that the person has heard. Nevertheless, the fact that there had been a vibration and he had got an ear means that a process of response has occurred in his protoplasm. And with quite a lot of people, when the eardrum is rattled, the vibrations go in the brain and they come down as far as the mouth 
and then they come out again and shoot it at another ear over here. And this we call incontinence. Incontinence means the inability to contain. Now we said before of uh, a knee jerk, you tap somebody there with a little hammer, there's a handle to tap it with, and the stimulus of the blow goes up a nerve to the base of the spine, out to the muscles, and the leg kicks. And the simple diagram for that kind of thing is that, one sin and one sound. Simpler than that would be that. We don't usually get those in human beings. And energy is inserted into a being and immediately comes out. That's the type of media. Now, consequently, we say that that action is mechanical. It doesn't go up to the intelligence level. It simply goes into a part of the nerves of the lower part of the spine and comes straight into the muscles of the leg and kicks up. It is not an intelligent act. You can, with practice, interfere with it so that you do not, even with a relaxed leg, show the knee jerk. But most people would show this knee jerk not as an intelligent response, but simply because the blow would impart a motion to the nerve and that would go and immediately return. Now, uh, that is the kind of thing that is being level without intelligence. It is possible to be without being intelligent. That is the being of a knee jerk. The gross material body will take a material particle, say a molecular group, with no organization at all, say a billiard ball, no intelligent organization, we impart a motion to it with the cue, and it runs away. Now, we don't call it an intelligent response on the part of the billiard ball because it has no alternative. It must run when it is struck. In the same way, for all untrained people, this knee will kick when it is struck. So it's an unintelligent response. But it is a being level. Now, this is the kind of opposite being level to this intellectualism. This is a being level in the brain where the eardrum being rattled goes round in the brain, maybe it makes the eyes a little wider in some people, and you think maybe they've heard, and say, don't say anything you don't know. The next being level is when it is being connected to the local apparatus. There must be a connection. Then a word comes out on the tongue and rattles another ear. Now, it isn't good enough for this person. If the message coming, this is truth, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. First we must hear the truth, then we must understand the truth, then we must push the truth down into action. Now first we hear it, that is it rattles the eardrum, goes in the mind, it goes round, it can get on the tongue and go out. If it does so, the mere fact that it has waggled the tongue prematurely means that you have lost the energy that might have enabled you to understand what it was that came in. You cannot understand the proposition if you allow it to leak out immediately. So the thing is, when the eardrum is rattled, if you want to convert it into another being level, which is already being at the audio level, you want to convert it into executive power when the arm is connected, or going power, the legs are connected, you have to shift it, not allow it to leak onto the tongue. You have to contain it and let it go down the body 
into the feeling centre. Now, every idea is a complex, but every complex of form has in it elements which, when reduced and separated, will receive an unqualified I like it or I don't like it. And when you have analysed a complex idea into its simple elements, to each element you can say yes or no. I want it, I don't want it. And when you have taken the sound significance into the feeling, you have then understood its relation to your life direction. Every individual is going somewhere, they like certain things, they dislike other things. That's their orientation. One likes a football match, another likes ITV, and so on, and dislikes the contrary. Now, we have to find out what we like about these things, because in this liking is the orientation. And when we have orientated ourselves, turned ourselves towards the sun that we worship, the source to which we wish to return, then we pass it down into the will centre, where it then starts manipulating our drive forces and carries us along in that direction. So we can talk here very, very simply about three levels of being. The thinking level, the feeling level, and the volitional level. Now, it's quite common for people to have their eardrums rattled and for them to let it go and rattle somebody else's eardrum and never deliberately bring it down, analyse it and find out whether they like it or don't like it in all its parts. That is the commonest type of reaction. Another reaction, not so common, is to bring it down to the feeling level without analysis and to become very confused, to feel I like it, I don't like it all over. I must get rid of it and keep it for myself, and so on. A whole series of contradictions appear in the emotional centres, and that is quite common. It is very rare for the thing to be clarified on this level of the feeling, and then carried into unity in the will centre. If it's brought down into this centre, it actually becomes gross being and will then produce a change in the germplasm such that children derived will have that modification in Now the reason that most children do not reflect the known mental content or emotional content of the parents is because it hasn't been pushed right down into the will centre. The will centre is the one that immediately models the germplasm form. So all the logos spermaticos, all this form here goes down into the sperm centres and creates form if it gets into this large centre and then the children have already a formal bias. Whereas if this stuff up here continuously leaks out into primitive voicing and this feeling level remains confused, and is never pushed into the unity of the will, it will not transmit. Now the Messiah comes out of a line. There's a genealogy, there are two genealogies in the New Testament worthy of study, because they are not inconsistent. They are merely two different lines because he had two parents. And the marriage of Joseph and Mary is justified because both of them 
derive, although Joseph is not the father, nevertheless he's related to a line Davidic. And therefore, it's quite legitimate to trace two genealogies because these two lines are derived from the same promised line. When Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, he shows by the fact that he takes the knife that he's got an idea in his mind that he's prepared to pay a price. He feels it and he pushes it down into the will centre and he goes with the sun. The fact that he goes and he loads the wood on the sun's back and he ties him up and he's ready to kill him means it's gone right into the gross material. That means it will transmit into the next biological result. And every time a form is digested, ruminated upon, felt, pushed into the will centre, it will appear in a subsequent generation. And the totality of all these commitments of truths into the gross material world on the genetic line constitute what is called the line of the Messiah. The Messiah is a biological fact as well as a cosmic fact. So the question of being levels is a question of understanding that every existent being, whether it's an error, that is a formal misplacing, or a truth, a logical consistency, is possessed of being. There are no non-beings. So being level simply means whether we're going to put it into the head only and leave it there, whether we let it go into the head and slip onto the tongue a little bit, the tongue belongs to the gullet. It's the thin end of the gullet. Whether we will carry it down into the feeling being and by analysis find out yes and no and then carry it into the will where it will be unified and objectified in the gross material world. Now let's understand that when it is said by the Hindus they are derived from the Brahmins who are sons of Abrahamin originally. Abraham sends some of his people into India very early on to become princes in that place. They take exactly the same thing. Just before you get into India you will find a, a Jewish sect there and in India itself there are Jews. And these Brahmins are simply Abrahamics who went through the Northwest Passage into India and took the same doctrine. Now, the sacred books of the Hindus are the Vedas. And Ved is the same thing as Dev or Dew, God. And it is the Vida, the Latin Vida, to see. What has been seen by the seers is the Vedas. Now, it is said by the Orthodox Brahman that things exist in the world because it says so in the Vedas. So, if there is a thing called Vat in the world, as a cow, it only exists because the word Vat exists in the Vedas. Now, some people call this superstition. The Christians say exactly the same thing when they say that the Logos, God, in the Gospel of John, Without him was nothing made that was made. It's only because things exist as form, which is a modality of power, that they can become objectified in the gross world later on as material beings. So the Brahman and the Abrahamin and his linear descendants 
are saying the same thing. There is a world of form. There is a world outside here of subtle form and another one the cause. And beyond that, the word form does not apply. F, R, N. Put the O in there. Now this F is the same as P, belong to it, it's the spirit organizing itself, circumscribing, differentiating and substantiating. Form means what pi ratio means. FR and PR are legitimate sounds here. Wherever there is a circumscription, there is the thought. And wherever the circumscription becomes substantiated with the motion within it, that is form. Now, the Platonic world and the world of the Stoics, the Logos, which supplied the theoretical ground of Christianity, is simply the substantial frequencies that occur inside the macrocosmic being. That's the letter M repeated. And the vibrations beating about inside the macrocosmic being in their totality are the Logos. The Logos is the ground of our logic. Because it is a circle, all logic is tautologic. That means all definition is cyclic. Lewis Carroll was well aware of the nature of logic, and he knew its derivation. All truth belongs to that sphere than which there is no bigger, the macrocosmic Logos. And every word that proceeds out of this mouth of God here is a truth. When it says of Jesus, there is none more excellent name than this, it's because the word Jesus has a very definite significance. It means if you write it in English instead of Hebrew. Yes, and there's a letter in the Hebrew here, which means no. So his name means yes and no. And he says that your yea be yea and your nay nay. All else comes of the devil. If you don't analyze the situation and reduce it to its fundamental elements and then give an unqualified yes or no to each element, then there is confusion in the emotional life. And if you do, then you are practicing yes, no. Your yes is yes and your no is no. And you then have technically the mind of Christ, which means every time that you analyze a situation, see it very clearly, all its elements separately, and give an unqualified yes and no to each one, and put all the yeses and all the noes on opposite sides like sheep and goats, then you have the mind of Christ, if you do that. But if you don't do it, then your mind is chaotic. The meaning of Jesus simply means yes and no. There is no more excellent name than this to be able to say yes unqualifiedly and no unqualifiedly and not to fall into that dreadful error called the uh, Laodicean error blowing neither hot nor cold. You won't say yes, you won't say no. You can't be bothered to analyse the situation you won't let go of it, and you won't take it out. That kind of thing is really death, disintegration to the organism.
So when his name, Jesus, is conferred upon him in the time process, it is derived from a primary dichotomy. No down there, and yes up there. Yes to the light, no to the dark. We say no to nescience and yes to intelligence. And this primary dichotomy mentioned in Genesis as the light created in the darkness and in the New Testament later as the darkness not comprehending the light the light shines in the darkness this no is the dark and this yes is the light so when we look at his other name Emmanuel this Emmanuel means the same as Exmanuel man is the word which means to count, to evaluate this is counting out this is the going of God so Emmanuel meaning God with us really means that as God goes man counts out man is an extension in the time process at the individual level of an absolute power and his name is Emmanuel that is when he's aware of the fact that all his ideation is no more than a reverberation in his substance of an absolute process which appears to him to be serial thinking if he's identified with it and the truth comes out he thinks he's clever if rubbish comes out he's quite sure somebody's tricked him this Emmanuel is quite a legitimate name to give to the man who says yes and no God is with us when we say yes and no and we do not say maybe in between will I be crucified or not it's no good at that moment saying I'm not quite sure yet I'm going to have my dinner you won't do you can't make a colossal figure that's completely turned the world upside down for 2000 years by wishy-washy not knowing what you're doing you have to say yes or no and this yes or no is the word Jesus in the Hebrew it's spelled exactly the same as the word was translated Joshua who fights all the battles that take the people of Israel into the promised land and the Palestine has to do with the pylor stone which is again this intellectual structure and form of the Mexican knowledge have a look at the leaving of Egypt uh, if we write uh, Egypt like this you can see the Greek word for earth there and here you can see the word type anagram type is the same thing as form and this is substantial Egypt always symbolizes in the Bible the land of gross material science, materialism. And when the Jews were in Egypt, they became very materialistic. If they had stayed there, they would have been orientated towards the gross material world. They would have become very, very good at acquiring the world's commodities. They had already done very well. And they would have forgotten all about their higher purpose of integrating themselves on other levels so they had to leave and because of the volitional activities of the progenitors 
of the dues, there were in the dues certain impulses to get out, and these embodied themselves in the person called Moses. I put the Moshe, if we put this on the Moshe, the Hebrew version of it. Really, this means taken out of the waters. The waters symbolize materiality. They are Egypt. He's put on the waters in a little ark of rushes. Just like Noah is put on the waters. Because the universe itself is a big ark inside an illimitable ocean. That is the uh, illimitable ocean, the Poseidon of the Greeks, the Neptune. Here is the big ark. Noah is consciousness, noetic principle. He has his three sons. Moses is the same function, again at another level. And he takes the Jews out of Egypt and he leads them towards another land. And the land that he leads them to is the Pinor stone land, or Palestine. Now the Pinor is the great law of this rotation. You know what pi is? It's the ratio of this diameter to the circumference of a circle. So, taking them into the Palestine, into the Pilar stone land, is taking them into the higher reason of the cosmic logos. The Jew symbol for it is the two interlaced triangles, which you see on the Israeli flag today. When we consider such a word as Palestine, and see its relation with the Pilar stone, and we know about the stone that Jacob rested his head on, and that uh, queens and things sit on today with some appreciation. We are talking about an objectification in the gross material world of a macrocosmic fact that the universe is a logical structure. Plotinus, Plato, Proclus, and the great thinkers of that period knew perfectly well that to think is to formulate, and that the formulation of the whole universe is the thinking of God. The absolute simultaneity of thinking in God is called the eternal thought of God. But the serial perception of a little bit of it by a finite observer within it is the serial process we call thinking. We think at ordinary levels one idea after the other and we concentrate, if we're lucky, on each idea as presented. And because we concentrate on them, we see them one after another. This is serial presentation. But with God, all ideas are simultaneously presented, and being simultaneously presented to him, he sees all their relations, absolutely. And the name of the being, substantial, with all form in it, in simultaneity, not serially, is called wisdom. If we write the word wisdom down again, there's a missing aspect there. You see? We anagram this out again. You see? Now, this is the Joshua word again. The I-H-S, that's a double U. I-H-S-V, which is simply the Hebrew name of Jesus again. Joshua. And the dome. This is the dome. And the yes-no inside here, these two triangles. The wisdom, therefore, is the totality of all form in simultaneous actuality. 
what we do when we think is take a little bit of it out and by concentrating upon each element one after the other we generate time we generate time is only kept in being by serial concentration if all the beings that there are were to concentrate on the absolute logos simultaneously there would be time no more that state is referred to in the revelation there will be time no more and people realize that serial thought processes cannot give the truth they can only give partials we have to have the simultaneous presentation of the substantial form of the macrocosmic being and that is the wisdom that is the truth and to take out even the, a little bit of the arc where there's an arc in to take that little bit out is to falsify if it is taken out of its context so any truth whatever lifted out of it other than the whole is automatically false false means it is there is a dog by Lawrence Lowry famous artist now if I write over the top of this horse that's a lie that's a dog I'm making a correspondence between horse and dog now supposing a horse is there and dog is over here and I say that is that that is a lie and yet both the elements that I take are true so lies are simply false conjunctions a theological definition of the absolute lie as pure non-being is ever true in order to exist at all a thing must be true so if a lie exists the parts of it must be true and only the real issue is false so whenever anybody tells you a lie they have told you a truth in fact more than one truth and made a false relation between them so we need never worry about lies and evil and so on because if we understand that if we push that to there and that to there that is a lie but if we let it go into its own place as Christ says every man goes to his own place and his works follow him then the whole thing will be true again so there are no evils there are no lies in the world that can deceive us if we simply say to ourselves the parts are true a man cannot tell a lie to me because I listen to him and I take all the parts separately and I refer them to the macrocosmic being and whatever he means by it is a matter of no importance to me I'm busy putting what he says horse has got paws on and horses don't have paws they have hoofs you know so this isn't really a horse at all he examines the object because he doesn't want to get something for nothing he doesn't want a horse for the price of a dog therefore he cannot be deceived that is the gypsy justification of twisting people if they weren't greedy we couldn't twist them so in this question of form and words we are to realize that in order to get the real value out of language we have to learn to interpret the word in its real context and this we can only do by the universal language the true symbology referred to by many of the mystics throughout the ages and by the great religions as a symbology which is always in perfect correspondence with the universe so if I write down a circle 
and say that is letter O. And whatever is circumscribed, I can call an O. And therefore, because to circumscribe means to bring into existence, to put a B on it, to make it into a being, because to circumscribe means that, I have brought this in the act to bring it to be into a peculiar relation. The line on the paper has produced an apparent separation between the paper here and the paper there. But really the paper has not been disturbed. The paper is under the line, inside it and outside it. The mark is only on the paper. Now let the paper represent the absolute consciousness of God and let a mark on the paper represent a form. The form rests upon the intelligence, absolute. If that paper didn't exist, I couldn't make a mark. If God's intelligence didn't exist, there would be no form. The form, in no sense, interrupts God's essentiality. So that all the forms of the universe that we see with our eyes, and the other things that we sense with our other four senses, are formal plays which in no sense interfere with the absolute consciousness which is God. So the shortest way to God is to rub out all the forms. This is the method of quietism. It's very, very hard work. It's the method of Raja Yoga. It's the method of Jnana Yoga. To rub out all the forms. When you've rubbed out all the forms, what remains is absolute intelligence. And you need never worry that when you grab the form out that it won't still exist. Because other beings are willing it to exist. So when you are dissociated with it, it will still exist because other people are willing it to exist. And only when all the beings in the universe will the non-existence of all forms will it disappear. As long as one exists and requires the presence of other beings, those beings will remain. So supposing we identify with the form and forget the paper, then we will fascinate ourselves and go round and round and round. This is called the wheel of existence. This is the wheel that Gautama Buddha was breaking. And this is the world that Christ said he was not of. But this white paper, the absolute intelligence, inside and out, God imminent, God transcendent, that is what he's talking about. The rulership is in the consciousness. And what is being ruled is the form. So, the more conscious of consciousness we become, the more control of idea we gain. But, if we become conscious only of the idea and not of the consciousness of the idea, then we become under the dominion of the idea. We become slaves. We know that in general we can disturb people. Advertising shows it. Propaganda shows it. But we can determine reactions in people's minds and bodies. A stampede, a war can be made by simply rattling people's eardrums. It's not so long ago since the last war when we saw a nation like the Russians are glorious allies. And then they're a terrible threat, possibly the Mongol hordes coming in. And in a matter of a few days, the whole mood of 60 million people here and 180 million in America so many moments elsewhere, can be changed by simply rattling their eardrums. And this is a dreadful fact that by means of little boxes with electricity in them, they rattle people's eardrums 
And then there occur processes in the mind and people run about. This is an external determination. And it can only occur where those people are conscious of the form but not of their consciousness. A young man who had very, very great riches was like this. When he went to Christ and asked what he could do to enter the kingdom, Christ said, you give up all you've got and follow me. And he was full of form like this. So when he looked inside himself, if he had given up what he had, he would have given himself up absolutely. And as he had no concept of this white paper, no concept of intelligence as gone, to give that up would have been to give himself up absolutely. He would have had no being, because his being was formed. So in the same way, if we take a man with a cherished idea and strike at that idea, that man will be shaken as if we hit him physically. One of the elementary facts that we see is that uh, if you say a man down the road is no good without mentioning his name, nobody bothers much. But if you say a man I know who is related to somebody in this room is no good, then a thing called blood is thicker than water operates. And this is again a matter of conditioning. It's exactly the Pavlov conditioned reflex. People are identified with forms. Two boys in the same family who fight like mad all day long and are real enemies. When one of them is attacked from outside, the other one gets very, very annoyed. Why? Because he's identified with him as part of his unit. And wherever identification with a form occurs, an attack on that form is equivalent to an attack on the being. So today, if you take a Christian and say to him, Christianity is um, really nothing. It is just a matter of faith, originally. They hadn't got a philosophy or anything. They had to borrow it. They had the Greeks. Now, the average Christian will bounce from that. But if he's well-read, he knows it to be true. And he also knows something else. That the temporal appearance of Christ a couple of thousand years ago is simply the ratification of a macrocosmic fact. That that supreme being of the universe has pressed into the time process and objectified itself in the personality which has come out of a long line of beings meditating on the macrocosmos, <laughs> such that they had produced a reciprocal point which was able to have exactly the mind of the macrocosmos, which we call the mind of Christ. And it was out of Jesus, the man who said yes, no, that the Christ arose. His time has not yet come, he said, when he said there. Let's have a bit of uh, wine out of the water. He wasn't ready. Because he was only working towards it then. The body was being brought into a condition. A greater and greater response capacity to the macrocosmic being. When it was perfected, then was the time for the crucifixion. This has to be on a 33. It has a certain relation with the number of vertebrae in the spine. And a special function of meditation on it. Christ has to be raised, lifted up. There is a serpent on the cross in the Old Testament. This serpent is life as an undulation. And the T represents form. That life is like the urge in the belly. And the T is like the idea in the mind. Christ says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man should be lifted up. 
that is our private serpentine cunning and individuation, must be lifted up onto the cosmic cross, become macrocosmically conscious. And then, in that lifting up and pinning on the macrocosmic, then, he says, I, that's the consciousness, when I be lifted up to the macrocosmic level, will draw all men, individuated men, to me. Because all men are striving for more and more power. All men are power seekers simply because they are men. Man needs to evaluate. And evaluation involves power. The individual man would like more power. And therefore, when he sees a way of power, he tends to move towards it. So, he needs muscle under eyes when he sees it. So when he sees steps on the scala perfectionis towards the macrocosmic sphere, he moves towards it. If he be shown too much, too soon, it can paralyze him, can frighten him. Hence the parables in the New Testament. Christ talks in parables that hearing they might not understand because if he tell them their objective position in relation to the macrocosmos, they will be completely paralyzed with the colossal size of the task. That's how it appears. Really, it isn't big at all. Because all we've got to do is rub out all the form. But it appears very, very big. If you say, well, I'll have to understand all my ideas, I can't do that. See, the Gnana yogis in India, they say, I must understand it. And the Bhakti yogis say, no, I'll just love it, it's easier. And Karma yogis say, I'm going to wash the dishes properly instead. Because it's even easier than loving and thinking. And so we get three major kinds of yoga there. And uh, a fourth kind, the Raja Yoga, which is aiming to concentrate, which is the hardest of all. Now, all these things we can show inside the New Testament, that the words of Christ are exactly the synthesis and the real significance of the whole of the Upanishadic and Vedic doctrines of the Hindus. Crystallized. If you get a, a New Testament with the red letters of Christ printed in it, and just take the red letters and read those, you will see an absolute statement of universal fact in a series of dialectical propositions involving the relations of duality above and below and right and left in the macrocosmos. So we have to get clear in our minds that we can only think by means of form and we can only manipulate form by saying what we are doing. And to say what we are doing is to use words. Words are principles of order. W-Ord is the entity that orders. When we put our words in order, then our thoughts go into order. If we have a wrong definition, verbally, it doesn't matter how sincere our intention, we get into trouble. The road to hell is paved with good intentions plus ignorance. So we must get hold of this universal symbology, the pre-Babel language of the human race. Now we know how the human race lost this language. It says in Genesis that they essayed to build a tower to heaven, lest they were scattered in the earth. And God came down as this absolute force appears and scatters them. And scatters their vocabulary. At that time, it says, man was of one speech. And therefore, when a man spoke to another man, the man understood what he said. 
and as they individually conspired together with one language to dictate from the material end of the universe, the universal scattered them and diversified their vocabularies. And the result was confusion, Babel, house against the house. Each being using a different language is confused. So from that moment, human beings could never again, unless they recovered that pre-Babel language, could never again understand each other. So the whole of human activities should be directed towards understanding, and this understanding involves clarity. This involves a proper use of terms. If you read uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice books, you'll find how clear he was about this. And if you read the works of Jakob who deliberately obscures the universal language whilst referring to it continuously, he's giving hints that there exists such. He's giving hints how to find it, how to work on it. And at the same time, he's saying it thus far and no farther. Because there are naughty people in the world who would abuse it. They would use it for power. And the fact is that the more that is known about the process of conditioning a reflex, the more power is in the hands of that man as a propaganda agent. <coughs> if somebody understands the way a knee-jerk works and how to condition a reflex and how to tie, say, the Herbart in masses into a person's mind, he can enslave the minds of other beings. And he does it by words. In the same way that we can tie people up with words and paralyze their volitional centers. So, by the application of the truth, they can regain their volitional unity, which is identical with this white paper, the absolute intelligence. This macrocosmic logos says, I, and my father, that is the paper, are one. Because this form here is simply the way the paper moves. A vibration of the paper produces a form. The form is not other than the paper vibrating. The Son of God is not other than God the Father moving in a particular manner, formally. So when Christ says, I and my Father are one, he's making a metaphysical statement, an ontological statement of fact. It is the same being, the same being which undulates like this, that's the letter M, and the same beam which goes like this with the letter O on it and goes round and then undulates round the O and that's the word on that very very same beam is the only beam there is so that absolutely the consciousness in us in each one of us in this room when I say each one I mean each body the consciousness is identical there are not separate consciousnesses there are only separate forms to which the one consciousness refers. So when Christ says that we should be one with each other as he is one with God, and we shall be one in him and he in God and so on, it is all a statement that form is simply a modality, a behaviour of the omnipotence of God. And yet the only way we as men, that is as evaluators, can get at it is through vocabulary. It doesn't matter in what religion we go, we'll find that the great religions have a ritual. That if there is a religion with no ritual, it is fanatic and destructive. 
the, the men that cut down absolutely on ritual, say the extreme Puritans and so on, are fanatic and destructive. And they're trying to get down to something that they call essential. And they become, in their dress and their thought processes and in everything else, dead. That is, they pin themselves on the skeleton because they're trying to eliminate what they would think is lush form. Now, ritual has significance. It is form. And every ritual is embodied in words. If the words are correctly understood, they are words of power. But if the meaning of those words is not understood by the individual using them, he will not get the full benefit. But he will get some benefit because they will condition his thought processes. So if you teach a baby to say two and two are four, as mere sounds, it won't understand the reference. But later on, when it grows up, it hears somebody saying two and two are four, and putting down bean pennies on the table, it will click. And something it has learned without understanding will suddenly have conferred upon it understanding. This is why the Catholics as a body say, uh, let us educate the children and engram upon them the form of the ritual. And then later on we tell them the meaning. Now, there are very, very good theories in conditioning reflexes. Although they don't call it that. They call it religious education. In other churches, say in the Protestant churches, they tell it to cut down on the ritual and in the process to impoverish the mind, except for a few very, very great men. If you read a man like Kierkegaard, you'll find a man tremendously clear about the significance of his terms. A man who's the father of modern existentialism. You'll find all the great Protestant leaders are suddenly aware that they're juggling with terms. Why should we bother that there's a, a faith and works? Shall we throw away, away the word works and retain faith? If faith, you have faith in the church. What does it mean? It means you believe what the church says. What should you do about it? Well, the Catholic said you must uh, work. What does work mean? Well, if you're not a working type, you can give some cash to the church. Now, this caused a drift of money to Italy, into the Vatican. After a time, it was observed that this technique was very, very good faith in works. So some other fellows who wanted to stop the drift said, cut off the work and let's be saved by faith alone. This caused Luther to get a, a gospel, the Gospel of James, and say, this is an epistle of straw, because it says faith without works is dead. And manifestly, work cannot save you. Because a perfectly ignorant man could work and work and work and work without any benefit whatever. Unless he believes that his work is helping him, it won't help. So therefore, so the works away. Now when they'd done that, they had started a process that enlightened men even then could see would result in people saying, all right, now we're being saved by faith. So we don't even pay tithes anymore. In fact, we, we put buttons in the collection box because we don't need works. Now you see, every formal statement admits of a dialectical opposite. Therefore, Taoism says, if I had the great chopper, I would hesitate to use it. Did Luther know that when he chucked out the works, that later on the lineal descendants of the new tradition would find it very, very hard to keep a church in repair because the faithful were just faithful and not workful?
Did he see it? The problem immediately for him was one of experience. Now these things have got to be seen, and it was a word that did it. So when we're thinking, we have to get the right words in order to produce the right substantial conditions. And substantialization of words in us means first we hear, then we think about it, then we put it down into the feeling center and break it into bits. Do I like this bit, that bit, and so on? We put all the bits to which we can say yes together, all the bits to which we say no together. And then we throw away all the ones that we say no to, and we affirm the ones that we say yes to. Unqualified. And when we give an unqualified yes to anything whatever, the will orientates towards it, unifies the elements to which yes has been said, and projects into the gross material world the substantial reality. And it cannot be done by other than a unifying affirmation. It must be yes to every element. So, if you have a relation with human beings, and you find that there's a terrific lot about them to which you must say no because it's rubbish, then you want to rethink it. Because why should you say no to rubbish? Supposing there was a very, very finely sensitive built uh, rose, and a man came along and started putting manure on the ground around its roots, and the rose said, I don't want it. I, I, I don't like the smell. You see? And supposing the man listened didn't bother to do it, what would happen to the person of the rose? It wouldn't improve. All that we call rubbish in the world is quite right for those people who worship it. This is why Christ talks in parables. He talked about the Sermon on the Mount in one way, and he takes his disciples into a little quiet spot and says, now I tell them these things they're hearing they might not understand. But you are the salt of the earth. Salt means sally, they're very sharp. And to you it is given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There was a handful of men, thousands followed him, then a few hundred. Some found things very, very difficult to understand. A lot of people ran away when he said, you must eat my body and drink my blood. That's cannibalism. So they all ran away. A few were left, and of the twelve that were left, there was dissension and jugglery for first places in heaven. And one he mentioned as his favourite. And that one was the supreme intellectual, St. John. He knew the meaning of the parable. And in that fact, he was equated with the macrocosmic logos in its individuated sense on earth, in an earth body. John means intellect. And John the divine means the intellect devoted to divining the matter doesn't logos. And Christ is that logos. So, John is devoted to Christ. And the Christ counts him as his favourite because he is devoted to him. He says, if you love me, do as I say. If you feel in a certain way, let there be action. This is the way to substantiate B. So, in fact, we, the problem for us is this. We've often heard it from different circles, I know. 
quite a lot of different circles working in ways roughly similar to this. And most of them say nobody works, everybody talks, and so on. And they don't realise that you cannot work until your thought process is orientated correctly. You can't work to become spiritual unless you first have the right direction. You could do a horrible thing to yourself. That was good if it called wrong crystallisation could occur. A man with insufficient data could work very hard and integrate his insufficient data, like Hitler tried to do. He could have an idea, an erroneous idea, that the Teutonic peoples are supermen, and that the rest of the world are simply things to be distributed by them. And he could work with that idea and integrate it, and then act upon it. And it's a false integration. And therefore, when somebody wants work to be done, they should be very careful that that work is not being done primitively. What we want to understand is the macrocosmic logos in its broad outlines before we work at all. First we must hear about it, then we must meditate upon it, then we must decide whether we like it or not in all its parts. And then if there are some parts we don't, just throw them away, it's a mistake, throw them away for the time being, devote to the yeses and unify the will. That will take you on a definite life course and you will discover in the process, like the rose did, that the manure has utility. But if you're absolutely sincere at your own level of being at any given moment and say yes and no, you cannot go wrong at that level. And a mistake is simply a mistake. It's taking something amiss. And an error is a running away from that to which you should run towards. And an evil is that which is contrary to the life. Evil is that to the life. And sin is separation from the absolute good. And it has no other meaning. So all the falsities and the sins and the lies and the evils and so on, all those things are simply less and less and less of what we want. We want more life, more abundant life, more intelligence, more willpower, all these things we want, and everything that moves us the other way is an evil and a sin. And it has no other meaning to talk about sin and evil unless it causes a degeneration of our faculties and our powers. So, I'd like, if possible, to get this perfectly clear that we must understand the words we're talking about that even work with a dictionary is not wasted. We find a certain term in the dictionary and it leads to another one. If we take the great... Uh, you had a question, didn't you, Jack, about the planets outside Saturn. If we say, criticising the cosmology of a certain period, or say the ideas of the astronomers, why do they count only to Saturn? The answer is, Saturn represents a certain limit of individuation. And if, if we take uh, Uranus and Pluto, Neptune, we're talking about something beyond the individuated. Uranus is the heaven power, which is born out of the earth power. You know, St. Paul says, first a physical body, then a spiritual body. And the heaven is made in Genesis after the earth is stated, the earth was without form and void, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, 
and then he made a firmament. This firmament was called heaven, and that's usance. And that is a limit, a limiting factor, a sphere. And Pluto is the lord of the underworld, of the darkness. Beyond this, it's the pylor again, in its absolute limit. Neptune is the ocean of form, not yet rotating, just big waves undulating around the cosmos. These are different levels of being. And until we understand up to the level of Saturn, that is, up to the level of individuation, it is quite useless for us to talk about the non-individuated. We must understand finite thinking before we can talk about infinite thinking. We must understand why I like so-and-so and dislike something else before we can talk about universal compassion. Lots of people can knit socks for people in Africa they've never seen and they won't knit socks for the woman next door. That is universal compassion without individual compassion. <coughs> and we've got to get back to ourselves. The tendency is not to work on what we have, but to want to know more and more and more about bigger metaphysical problems because it relieves us of the necessity for immediate work on ourselves. So if we know anything at all, no matter how tiny, if we can take the idea of it, feel about it, and then force it through the will into action in the material world, we are carrying it from one level of being, the intellectual, through the feeling, the emotional level, into the gross material world, and that is the term of action. If it once gets in there, it will stay permanently. A man can think about riding a bicycle and never have ridden one. He then gets on it and he finds that he falls off. And after many tries, <coughs> after many tries, he finds quite suddenly that the body is riding. Now, when the body is riding the bike, that is substantial being. The form of riding a bike is now substantial. He doesn't need to think about it. He has actually substantiated bike life. And that is what we want to aim at. We can think about spirit. We might even emote about it. Lots of people can emote about the crucifixion once a year. We get very upset. Can they put it into the will and then go out and crucify themselves in the same way in daily life? If not, they're deficient on the lower level of being. And that is the term of action. And you cannot turn round and go to heaven until you've been down properly. Christ has to be crucified, taken off, buried, and go to hell before the resurrection. So we cannot do it by simply intellectualizing. We can't do it by emoting them. We've got to get it down to the will level, put it into the growth material world, before we can resurrect. <coughs> so really, we don't want to know anything about levels that we cannot apply. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. <laughs> is that fairly clear now about the word values? See, most people think the words are arbitrary, and that any old word would do. Not so very long ago, uh, a bright young woman said, Well, I know reason why I shouldn't call an elephant a fox. And it makes it rather difficult for the fox hunters to take away. Everything has to be shifted. And if you shift one term, you'll have to shift all. Lewis Carroll called it paying extra. 
and it will falsify our vocabularies, our thought process, and because our emotions are tied to those ideational forms, it will falsify our emotions. All the neurotics that we see increasing nearly are confused in words first. Nothing else. First you confuse their terms. You give them a lot of ideas about duty, about what they want, about what they should have, what they ought to do. These words rotate in them, and they don't fit. This not-fittingness of the words produces non-fittingness of ideas, this produces emotional confusion, this disorientation upsets them so badly that they literally begin to disintegrate. So all this mental sanity, this wholeness in the mind, requires consistency. So we should never scorn the word. And our best work to do in the initial stages is to put down key words like God, soul, immortality, and so on, and really get to know what they mean. Don't have a vague idea about it. Immortality means unbreakableness. Have we got unbreakableness of the physical body, of the ideas? We can't break the soul. It's an absolute continuous being. It has no parts. But we can break minds and we can break bodies. Body and mind are mortal. They are breakable. So, not having parts, being a continuous entity, is not breakable. Therefore, the soul is immortal. To become quite clear about these terms enables you to let go of things that would be problematical and turn your energies towards another level. Substantiate each level. If you say to yourself, all right, I'm stopping worrying about my soul now because it's immortal. I'm going to start putting my mind in order, not my soul. Because my mind can break. And I'm going to be careful of my physical body as my instrument of experience on earth, so I will not put it under a bus because it's breakable. Now you stop worrying about the things that don't need worrying about. The infinite, the absolute, we should worry about that. Because nothing can break it. And yet there are people that actually worry about the possibility of God ceasing to be. That's because they don't understand what God is. God cannot cease to be. That's the one thing that God can't do. And therefore, not to worry about it. <laughs> we do our Any work we have to do is to be down on us as individuals, put our forms in consistent shape, and then we are building immortality in the logical consistency of our minds. If we bring our mind into exact conformity with the universal mind, we then have what is called the mind of Christ. That can't break, because it is being held by God. Christ says, Those the Father puts into my hand, no man shall snatch out. If you want to see a self-consistent truth penetrate to its meaning, the cleverest fellow in the world cannot take it off you. So that when the truth has really got you, and is substantiated in you, nobody can shake your confidence. You can say, oh, why don't you break my money? It does break in any case. In a few years' time, it will fall to pieces even if you don't break it. So I'm not putting my money on the body. 
And about ordinary ideas from the five senses, I won't back those either because they depend for the relation on the order of presentation of stimuli. They're about my internal reason, about the light that lights every man that comes into the world, the macrocosmic laws. I put my money on that because that won't be because God is keeping it in me. So we back the thing that must win. So we want to grow in confidence and power in life. And this we can only do by affirming these things. We can't do it by negating. We must affirm. And if there is any rubbish of behavior or physical fact or feeling in another being, never say that that rubbish is absolute. If it exists, it is a part of truth. It has a utility. A bit of irritability, a bit of bad temper, an explosion, so in another person, a near and dear one, we usually find them in. When it occurs, we shouldn't say, this shouldn't be. This is a terrible thing, my near and dear ones hitting the ceiling. And shouldn't. We should say, it has happened. And it is to me that it has happened. Therefore, I need it. I must examine myself. How do I react? Do I require something different? I have to accept every gross material thing that happens in the world as coming to me. And when I accept it and penetrate to its understanding, I have changed my being then. Because what we want to do is become immune to external determination. So if somebody flying off the handle can reduce us to misery, that's a bad thing. We should be so integrated that it doesn't really matter what anybody does on the outside. We should penetrate straight through that naughty behavior to the essential white paper behind the black mark. And that is our self. And relate only to that. And call all the rest, all formal behavior, superficial. We actually find a slight difference between the male and female in this that uh, a man would tend, as a rationalist as being, not to forgive as quickly as a woman. Because she, being stressed volitionally, wouldn't retain the form if it was no longer useful. So after hitting you very, very hard, she'll forgive you. Whereas he would tend to hold it and think about it, rationalize it, and say, this shouldn't be. Now, he should be able to let go this is where the Tao Te Ching says, he who, being a man, could remain a woman, his work is finished. If he, with the ideas, when he'd been hit very hard, instead of wrapping it up, suddenly scrubbed the idea out and returned to being a volitional being, the will, not being made apart, is eternality itself. So if he returns to the will center, scrubbing out the idea, then he has regained his original unity. Whereas, if the external naughty behavior of the near and dear one throws him into a state of rational misery, where he tries to work out why she did this thing for about four days, and she's forgotten all about it in four minutes. <laughs> you see, it's his identification with the formal process, being a rational being, that leads him into prolonging a misery. And he's being unchristian, sufficient for the days. And yet it is a massive intent.
Doesn't dictionary help much? Yes, an etymological dictionary helps a great deal. What? An etymological one. One that can give you the, the root of the word in Latin, Greek, Sanskrit. Now, uh, a very good single volume one is Wilds. Wilds. Wilds Universal, you know. W. Wild. It's about the best single volume dictionary you can get. Unless you want to go into the Oxford 30 volumes. This gives you the dates of the appearance of the word. And if you get back to the root, you discover that there is nothing new under the sun. All these clever things that the scientists talk about now, they have to borrow root ideas, mostly from Greek today. Greeks had a word for it. And just distort that thing slightly into a modern spelling for a fundamental mechanical or psychological fact. And the same reality can be viewed as a psychological fact, and it is a feeling fact or as a rational fact, or as a gross material fact. So the different fields of philosophy and psychology and science all have words which run into each other. The word attention, psychologically, is a tension. You cannot have an attention, psychologically, without a tension of power somewhere in you. for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.